You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast, www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual harmony, well, there's nothing you can't ask on the Savage Lovecast. They're back. Just in time for Pride, the ex-gays and the right-wing political and religious organizations that promote them are back. And they've got a shiny new website and a hip new Instagram account to appeal to the youngsters. You may recall that Exodus International, the nation's oldest and largest and most toxic ex-gay org, folded in 2013. And on their way out, while they shuffled off this mortal coil, they admitted that ex-gay therapy, conversion therapy, praying away the gay, it doesn't work. Their leader even apologized for the pain and hurt Exodus had caused so many LGBTQ people. This was the same guy, Alan Chambers, that was his name, who a few years earlier had famously said, or I tried to make him famous for having said this, that the opposite of homosexual isn't heterosexual, it's holiness. All right, let's pause here quickly to clock that name, Exodus, the chapter in the Bible about Moses leading the Jews out of slavery in Egypt. Exodus framed homosexuality as a slavery and Alan Chambers and all the assholes at Exodus were supposed to be the Mosai. Anyway, Exodus was an umbrella group, an umbrella organization. So there were still other ex-gay orgs rattling around out there after the motherfucker ship shut down. I don't know if the ex-gay org with the shiny new Instagram account a reader directed my attention to last week is a new ex-gay org or a rebranded old ex-gay org. And you know what? I don't really care. New or old, it is the same old ex-gay bullshit in a shiny new bag. This time, they're calling themselves Equipped to Love... Let's break that down. Only straight people are capable of love. Only straight people are equipped to love. Gay people, unequipped to love. And their tagline, equipped to love's tagline is, nothing is impossible with God. These are the same people, of course, who will tell you that they oppose homosexuality because two men can't make a baby. So some things are impossible, even with God on your side, it seems. Equipped to love's new ex-gay, anti-gay campaign is called Once Gay. They've got a website, oncegay.com, and an Instagram account, also oncegay, and a hashtag, hashtag oncegay. And their Instagram account, in a charming move, appropriates the pride flag because that's what Jesus would do if Jesus was an asshole and a troll. Anyway, the oncegay website features testimonials, as does their Instagram account, for men and women who've managed to escape the slavery of the homosexual lifestyle with the help of, spoiler alert, Jesus Christ. Like I said, same old shit, brand new bag. And they're pushing the same old garbage they've always pushed because really, garbage is all they've got. Well, garbage in a small and very sad collection of self-hating, recloseted cases. If you go to the website, you will learn that people become gay because they were molested as children, been debunked, disproved, not true, a lie, or seduced by adults when they were teenagers, debunked, disproved, a lie. There's a lot of that all over the website. But there is way more of their favorite stories about gay men, about a particular kind of gay man, the sad gay cockhound. Andrew says, I started drinking, doing drugs, and being promiscuous at an early age. Then I started to drink more and do more drugs until I was having a lot of blackout nights and not remembering on the next day what I had done or who the night before. I was having multiple sex partners without using protection, and I was seeking men through outlets that weren't safe. Gary says, my life as a homosexual was chaotic. There were some high points, 
but for the most part, the lows were extremely low and there were many of them. I was using a lot of alcohol, sex, and other types of distractions in order just to cope. Another Andrew says, I had a career in musical theater in New York City. I was gay, identified, and I was sexually addicted. I had many one-night stands through Craigslist or other ways. I was in relationship after relationship that failed and had hookup after hookup after hookup. And it all just made me feel bad about myself. There is nothing religious conservatives enjoy more than sitting around swapping titillating stories about slutty, slutty gay men having tons and tons of meaningless, soul-deadening, hole-wrecking gay sex. And you know what? I am the first to admit that it is possible for gay men to have tons of sex. Gay men can have too much sex, even. Anonymous and or one-off sex doesn't have to be meaningless or squalid or wreck your hole, of course, but gay men are men. And men can be pigs. As I've long said, straight men would do everything gay men do if straight men could, but straight men can't because women won't. And it's not that women are any less horny than men. Women can be pigs too, and studies have shown women just as horny as men. It's just that women have to factor in sexual violence, risk of pregnancy, and slut-shaming before deciding to jump into bed, bush, or back room with some dude they just met. Now, let's assume, for sake of argument, that these testimonials are real and that Andrew, Gary, and Andrew are actual people who left the gay lifestyle. These ex-gay guys are always trotting out. It's always the hoes, isn't it? Every last ex-gay guy featured at once gay, if these guys exist, either believes or is willing to pretend to believe that they had just one choice, gay and all the dicks or straight and no dicks at all. Gay and all the drugs or straight and none of the drugs. No middle ground. No moderation. That's what we in the business call a false choice. Because it is possible for a man to be gay and spend his entire adult life nibbling just one dick or just one dick at a time. But in the ex-gay narrative, the titillating ex-gay narrative, beloved by religious conservatives, they cannot get enough of it. Fap, fap, fap. Gay sex is always meaningless and dehumanizing and a parade of cock. Gay men are addicted to dick, and we can't control ourselves. Only straight sex is meaningful. Only straight people are properly equipped to love. Only straight people can control themselves. It's easy to laugh at these self-hating ex-gay hoes and their stupid slogans and their false choices and their idiotic social media campaigns. But it's important to remember that gay people aren't the target audience for campaigns like this. The religious right isn't attempting to save us from ourselves. They're not trying to slap the dick out of my mouth. This is about weaponizing a small handful of self-hating homos and using them to convince straight people, including straight parents of gay children, vulnerable gay children, that gay people don't need to exist, that we can change and should change and would change if only we weren't so stubborn and so very addicted to dick. It's a dangerous argument because it's just a couple of short hops from these people don't need to exist to they don't deserve to exist to, hey, see that faggot over there? Let's end his existence. It is, at bottom, exterminationist rhetoric, eliminationist homophobia. And Equipped to Love is pushing it out there just in time for pride and pushing it on straight people, including the straight parents of vulnerable queer kids. Because they're the assholes and they're the trolls, not Jesus Christ, their imaginary friend, and they don't care if they push a gay kid to suicide or get a gay man killed. Finally, Andrew, Gary, Andrew, I'd like you to meet Michael and Gary. Michael Boosie, co-founder of Exodus International, and Gary Cooper, a leader of Exodus International back in the day. They met at Exodus where they fell in love and came out 
a third time. First as gay, then as ex-gay, then as ex-ex-gays. Also known as always were gays, always will be gays. You can't pray it away, guys. You can lie to your faith leaders. You can lie to your opposite sex trophy spouse. You can lie to us on Instagram, but you can't lie to yourselves. You know what's going on between your ears when your dick is hard. And if Jesus exists, so does he. All right, coming up on today's show, on the micro edition, tons of your cues, lots of my A's, and on the magnum Savage Lovecast that you can subscribe to at savagelovecast.com. Twice as long, more guests, no ads. Ellie and Leigh are here from the Les Hangout podcast to help us tackle a whole bunch of your lesbian questions. That's on today's show. Hey, Dan. I'm a 35-year-old straight male living in Des Moines, Iowa, and I have a pretty interesting situation that happened to me the other day at work. Um, I'm a flight attendant, and I was flying with one of my work acquaintances, and uh, I was talking about how great my relationship is with my current girlfriend and how she's basically up for anything. We've talked about possibly having an open relationship or open marriage in the future. And when I arrived back into Chicago at the end of my trip, keep in mind I'm flying with this guy, uh, my girlfriend actually texted me, and she was like, are you by yourself? Can you talk? So I called her and what had happened apparently was once we landed into Chicago, one of my, my work acquaintance, the guy who I'm flying with apparently had messaged my girlfriend and, you know, had asked her a really inappropriate question. Uh, The question he asked her was, you know, what's the largest sex toy you've ever used? And at first she thought that this was a prank that I was pulling with him and it wasn't. So I told him that, or I told her that, and I was really completely taken back by the whole thing. I cannot believe my work acquaintance not only did that, but the fact that he did it while I was working right next to the guy. There's two questions I've got. The first one is, how do I respond to this with this guy? Do I say something to him? I mean, at what he's just a work acquaintance, but it's still, I can't let this go, you know, it, I can't let it go on like that. It, no one should talk to her like that. And second, my girlfriend actually messaged my best friend, like, do you know anything about this? Because when I was still in the air, she was thinking, oh, this must be a prank. And my best friend was like, oh, it's probably something that he did, you know, in conjunction with him. It's just a prank. And then when I told my best friend that, I said, hey, it wasn't. He literally said that, that he he had messaged her. And his response was, oh, yikes. And he really at first didn't believe her. And now I'm kind of upset at my best friend for this, too. I really don't know what to do. I could really use your help with not only how I confront this guy and how do I talk to my best friend about basically not believing and he didn't want to be involved in it whatsoever. Working backwards, I don't understand why you're mad at your friend for guessing wrong. Your girlfriend contacted your friend to say, hey, what's up with this, do you think? And your friend was like, maybe it's a prank. I don't think he violated your trust or violated you in any way or violated your girlfriend. I think he just guessed wrong. Might want to have a convo with your friend about why he would guess wrong. If in the past you've engaged in kind of dirty pranks and ribald conversation with him and joked around about the size of sex toys, he might make a legitimate case that it wasn't a leap to think that this might have been a prank in which you were participating. Uh, but obviously, it was the wrong leap, the wrong assumption. He guessed wrong, and he owes you a small apology while you two patch it back up and forget about this. The much bigger issue is your coworker. You 
let him know that you're an open relationship. People all the time discuss their relationships, particularly their monogamous, closed, opposite-sex, heterosexual relationships. Those of us who are in relationships that don't fall into the monogamous, heterosexual, opposite-sex mold or category, we have as much right to discuss the shape and contour, the general outlines of our relationship as any opposite-sex monogamous person does. Hopefully, an appropriate conversation at work, the opposite-sex monogamous person doesn't tell you all the crazy monogamous sex that they enjoy with their partner. That's TMI, an inappropriate workplace conversation. And likewise, somebody who's in an open relationship is allowed to discuss the contours and shape of their relationship without getting into the details of the kind of sex that they engage in with their primary partner or their other partners. It's just a fact about a person. Monogamous, closed relationship. What are you doing this weekend? Hanging out with my girlfriend, whatever. Fact about a person, open relationship. That your coworker went from learning that fact about you to the assumption apparently that people in open relationships have no boundaries, that people in open relationships can be asked anything, that people in open relationships are fair game for dick pics, unwelcome sexual questions and innuendos and remarks. That's a problem. And my advice to you would be to take it to this person first. You obviously felt comfortable enough with this person to share this information, to discuss your relationship with him in the first place. And then he made this leap that a lot of people make when they find out people in open relationships, which is to, well, I can ask them anything. I can hit on them. They are fair game. Since they're not doing the closed monogamous thing, they are public property. And that was also incorrect, but a much more offensive leap, much more offensive guess than the one your friend made. So go to him and say, dude, that was out of line. Never do anything like that again. Why would you think it was okay for you to ask my girlfriend a question like that? And I'm firing a shot across your bow. I'm discussing this with you and I want an apology from you. I could be discussing this with H fucking R, which would probably come down on you a lot harder than I'm coming down on you now. But dude, what the fuck? And see what he says. I have had this conversation myself with people who, when they find out you're in an open relationship, think that they can say anything, do anything, touch you. Because if you're not doing the closed monogamy thing, then obviously you are, again, public property in a way that somebody in a monogamous relationship isn't. And it doesn't take much to set a person right. It doesn't take much, usually, if a person isn't an idiot, for them to see the mistake that they made and for them to realize that the assumptions that they had about people in open relationships were incorrect. So this could be a learning opportunity for your idiot coworker. Confront him. And I would advise you to do it in writing or via text so that you have a record. So that he doesn't decide if you mention HR to go to HR first and report you for something inappropriate that you did not do. Discussing your relationship outlines contours, not offensive. Shouldn't be a problem, but you don't want him to decide to file a complaint first. So do it via text. Hi, Dan, Nancy, and the Tech Semi at Rescues. I'm a 22-year-old bi-female from Denver, Colorado. I'm wondering how to come out as a stripper to my family. I have been dancing for two years now, and I've told my family that I bartend at a club. Some family members know and are the more open and accepting ones, but I fear that the other family members will be upset or offended but I'm tired of keeping up the facade. I love dancing and plan to keep on doing it until I'm unable. I'm not scared to be disowned, 
because my family is pretty dysfunctional anyway. I've had some of them tell me that I'd better not be dancing because dancing is so bad compared to bartending at a club, but that's part of the reason I diverted into saying I was bartending instead. Any literature recommendations or advice would be greatly appreciated. I often advise people to run their families on a need-to-know basis. Does your family need to know this? If you're gay, they kind of need to know that because that's who you're going to be with and there's a public dimension to your relationships. And if they're going to know you and be a part of your life, to hide your romantic relationships from your family means to hide from your family entirely. They don't need to know what you're doing in bed with your same-sex partner. That's TMI. But they do need to know that you are in a same-sex relationship or that you're gay and same-sex relationships are in your future if you're not in one now. Your kinks? Eh. Does your family really need to know about your kinks? Your porn preferences? Does your family really need to know about your porn preferences? Your job is a hard thing to hide from your family. What you do for a living is a difficult thing to hide from your family. And when someone does sex work, there's so much stigma and so much shame attached to sex work. And we want to live in a world at some point where that stigma and shame is reduced, if not eliminated, fingers crossed for eliminated. And we're not going to get to that place where the stigma and shame attached to sex work is lessened or gone until people are more out about doing sex work. There are a lot of people out there doing sex work and they may be out to a confidant or a couple of close friends or some sex worker pals or their advice columnist friend Dan, but they're not out to their families. And it really is, if you look at the experience of LGBT people, it really is family that changes the world. When you come out to your family about who you are or what you're doing, they may not like it at first, but it's hard for family to walk away from family. People will reassess their prejudices. Maybe not immediately. It can be a long, drawn-out, painful, yelly, shouty process. But they will, in time, reassess their prejudices when they have to weigh the person that they know and love and have loved for a long time against what the Pope told them about cocksuckers. Or what the culture, what movies and television and film and stigma and shame taught them to believe about people who dance or strip or cam or do porn, or do other forms of sex work. If you don't care whether your family disowns you or not for dancing, you're in a good position to fight the stigma, fight the shame, throw that in your family's laps, and let them think about it. Maybe in the screaming and yelling and having a long, drawn-out, multi-year conversation about it, they will come around. Maybe you will wind up feeling closer to the family members who do accept you and embrace you and work through the stigma and shame that they've learned, unlearn it, by dint of being in relationship with you and being in conversation with you about the choices that you've made. And those are always going to be difficult, hard conversations at first. But you sound like you're in a good position to have that conversation. They don't have leverage over you. They aren't paying your bills. They aren't paying for education. And they're pretty dysfunctional and you don't care if they come or go. So insist that they accept you on your terms and be out to them. Be part of the change we want to see in the world where sex work and stigma and shame are concerned by bringing the members of your family who can be brought along along. Hey Dan, I am a uh, bisexual guy in a big city and uh, I just recently broke up with a guy I was seeing for about two years and I was wanting to try to become a unicorn for a couple. Um, it's been a fantasy of mine to um, basically just pleasure a couple for, you know, come in and do whatever they want. I'm pretty open to kind of everything men and women. Uh, I love them both. I love fucking both. So I'm trying to figure out where to find them. 
you can give me any pointers on where to, how to meet couples that would want to have an extra guy in the room for once, twice, many times. I don't care. Uh, I just would love to uh, please a couple who might want a uh, a third in their uh, in their arrangement. Got to hang your shingle. There are dating apps out there for people seeking thirds. There are dating apps out there for bisexual couples and bisexual singles. And I think you should jump in there. You can also put what you want or what you have to offer onto a mainstream dating app like your OkCupid or your Match.com. You can say who you are and say what you want even there. Speaking to a bisexual friend of mine who wanted what you wanted, wanted the opposite sex couple where they could have the best of both worlds, he said the most success that he's had seeking that out isn't in organized swinging, which is pretty anti-male biphobic. There's a huge double standard in organized swinging where the women are allowed to be casually bi, but there's no touchy-touchy guy-to-guy for some reason that's not permitted in organized swinging, where he found the couples that he was looking for where he could have the best of both worlds and be that very special guest star, be the third, be the unicorn boyfriend, was in cuckolding. He looked to cuckolding ads, couples who are actively seeking a guy to primarily have sex with the girlfriend, but a lot of those couples are seeking guys who are open to also incidental contact with the husband or boyfriend. And he said it was like a gold mine. So you might want to look to cuckolding. But if cuckolding dynamics, if that sort of DS play doesn't interest you, just hang your shingle out there, man. People who don't want what you have to offer won't ask, won't hit you up. But the people who do want what you have to offer don't know to hit you up until you put that shingle out. Hi, Dan. I'm a 33-year-old female. Um, I'm currently trying to find a boyfriend, but I'm running into a problem right now. I am a member of the kink community, and I feel like it's important to tell people that that's a part of my life and, and that I'm in that lifestyle and that it might affect what I want to do with my spare time and what my ethics are like. However, whenever I bring the subject up to any person on any dating app, instantly guys are interpreting kink to mean horny or to mean generally uh, slutty. So I'm just really trying to figure out how to go about mentioning that I'm a part of the kink community and being honest about it without instigating this impression that all I want to do is fuck every guy who breathes. I just would like your feedback in terms of, you know, how you think I should approach dating, whether I should just tell guys, whether I shouldn't tell them anything, or if I should explain things differently. I assume that you're open to dating people that you meet within the kink community. You don't mention that as a potential strategy. You're talking about everybody you meet outside the kink community. Now, maybe that's because you're only encountering this problem when you attempt to meet people outside the kink community and you are open to dating people you meet in the kink community that you're a part of, but also wanting to move on all fronts, which I recommend to kinky people all the time. Avail yourself of those kinky spaces online or in real life. Go to the munches. Be an active member of the organized kink scene in your community, but also as kinky people, you have a right to be on OkCupid and Match.com and hashtag open and Tinder and Bumble and Christian Mingle and Farmers Only and everywhere else. And there are kinky people on all of those sites. When someone is kinky and they include that information on a site that is targeted primarily at normies. That can bring out the worst, not in kinky people, because kinky people understand that just because someone is kinky doesn't mean that they are open to anything and anyone at any time. 
So a lot of the negative attention or hypersexualized attention that kinky people get, people who mention that they're kinky on these sites, which most people who are kinky don't, is from non-kinky people who just think, oh, this is a kinky person, a self-identified kinky person. I can say and do whatever I want with this person. That's an insta-block. Block that person. So the question then becomes, as a kinky person, do you mention that you're kinky on your OkCupid's okay etc.? And I think it's best to perhaps withhold that. Go on a couple of dates. Get to know somebody. There is that point at which you begin to share who you are sexually with someone else. And there's that point when you're dating someone, maybe after the first time that you made out, where you begin to let them know who you are sexually. And that is the time to lay your kink cards on the table after they've gotten to know you a bit. It is an important part of your life, caller. You identify as a member of the kink community. And that's information that you're going to want to share with a potential future partner, particularly if it's something that you want to bring them into, that you want them to be a part of your activities in the organized kink community, or it's something that you want to be able to pursue concurrent with maybe a vanilla relationship. Maybe you're totally up for a relationship with somebody who's only interested in vanilla sex and you are also interested in vanilla sex, but there are these kink pursuits that will always be a part of your life and your future partner, vanilla or not, has to be down with a certain degree of openness and an accommodation and allowance for you to pursue these other sexual interests because they're really important to your sense of sexual fulfillment. And that's information that that person is entitled to, but not necessarily at the moment that they are checking out your ad on Bumber, Tyndall, Fish, Cupid, Farmer, whatever. It's not deceptive for a kinky person to withhold their sexual interests. It's not an act of deception for someone who is kinky to roll that information out a little bit later. Vanilla people don't have to rattle off all of their particular sexual interests and their sexual peculiarities, and almost everyone has them, on their personal ads. Kinky people aren't obligated to do so either. But you do want to demonstrate good judgment by laying your kink cards down on the table at an appropriate moment. Hi, Dan. I'm a 31-year-old queer identified person in the sense of both gender and sexuality. My presentation comes off as somewhere between a butch lesbian and a femme boy. Um, I'm reaching out to you, but also your listener base to see if I can get some answers and to see if other people are feeling the same way I'm feeling. As I grow older and sort through my sexuality, I'm realizing that although I have a very strong attraction to primarily women, I also have an attraction to men, but only in a very specific way. The thought of vanilla heterosexual type sex really squicks me out, but the thought of having sex like a gay man really turns me on. I've gotten to peg a few guys and it was really hot. When I watch gay porn, I picture myself in the top position and the men I'm attracted to are very femme or genderqueer as well. In the spectrum of my gender queerness, I often feel like a gay man. The thought of finding a straight guy who likes being pegged is not so appealing. So here are the things rumbling around in my head that are preventing me from pursuing this type of sex. I'm very active in the gay community in my city, and I'm a performer. Most of my friends are gay men. I've noticed a stigma around women who are attracted to gay men and pursue them. These women are talked about in a very negative way, as if they are creepy and clueless and like they have a weird fetish, or they're brushed off as fag hags who just want to make out with their gay friends and are seen as a joke. 
And although my gender is fluid, I'm worried that I'll be viewed in that way. I'm worried that my gender and sexuality will be invalidated because I have a vagina. I've thought about getting on some of the dating apps to put myself out there to possibly find someone who would be interested. But because I do know so many people in my community, I'm worried that my wants and desires and sex life would be put on blast and I would not be taken seriously or be made fun of in some way. Are there even gay or homo-flexible or queer femme men out there who would be interested in being topped by a person like myself? I've been hit on at gay bars, but I never take them seriously. I just chalk it up to them being drunk or joking around with me. Other than the occasional threesome or foursome, I find myself in with my best friend, who is a very sexy femme queer boy. I haven't gotten to live my own gay boy fantasy and I don't want to have to rely on him for the occasional opportunity to arise. I'm just fearful. Should I put myself out there? Are there other vagina having queer folk out there with these desires who have had success? Thank you for calling. Uh, You're welcome. I'm curious why you say no when you get hit on in gay bars. If what you're looking for is somebody who's gayish or gay presenting enough to work for you when somebody hits on you in a gay bar why is your response no thank you um because i i feel like usually it's like the few times that i have let myself go there then it's usually is just like i know it doesn't actually ever go anywhere it's just kind of i feel like it's like uh, a drunken fleeting moment or a, a joking around. And when okay. I take it seriously, then my feelings get hurt. <laughs> that makes total sense. You know? So you've learned from experience not to take the drunken, skinny, pretty gay boy up on the flirtatious offer because either he's going to balk at the last minute or it wasn't genuine. That makes sense. Yeah. yeah. But yeah. you have had successful three ways and four ways with your gay femme bestie? Yes. And yet you don't want to pursue that anymore because why? Um, it's not that I won't, I won't pursue it. If it happens, it happens. But I guess just because the nature of my relationship with, with him, mm-hmm. I don't want to inject myself into his sexual life too often. You know what I mean? We live together and we're best friends and we're really close. Have you asked him whether it's a problem for him if you inject yourself into his sex life on a semi-regular basis? I mean, we, we were actually in a like polyamorous type relationship before, mm-hmm. and we've decided that we need to, um, after that didn't work out, we decided that we should probably just focus on not having romantic or sexual type feelings for each other and focus on being best friends and roommates. And has some of the sex happened after you became best friends and roommates? Have you had friendly sex or is that outside the, outside the bounds now? Uh, well, we were friends first, um, and then the polyamorous relationship came after friendship, mm-hmm. and then uh, now we are back to friendship. And it, we've we've never had like one on one sexual interaction together, him and I. It's always been a group in a group situation when uh, there's someone, which often happens. Some because we're kind of a package deal around town. People know us together and. Uh-huh. Sometimes people assume we're together and then people approach us together sometimes for sexual stuff. But yeah. so it, it sounds like, you know, he's a pretty good wingman. 
And I wouldn't, you know, if you guys are able to stick the dismount and return to being friends, but also occasionally mess around without it screwing up your friendship, not officially in a relationship anymore. It's not as fraught. The stakes aren't as high. We're able to be intimate. And who knows? You might have a three-way with him or a four-way with him where you wind up hitting it off in a big way with one of the other participants that you can pursue then solo. So I just don't think you should close that off if you don't need to. Okay. The other thing that I would recommend is you say that you're afraid to put yourself out there uh, in you know mm-hmm. queer spaces, which aren't all gay male, mm-hmm. uh, for fear of having your gender or sexuality invalidated. I just wanted to drill down on what you mean by invalidation. There's the invalidation of people saying, no, you're not. That's not true. Mm-hmm. That's not possible. Mm-hmm. And that's true invalidation. And that's not okay. But some people use invalidation when they mean rejection. Mm-hmm. I was hit on, you know, I hit on this person, I put myself out there, and I felt really invalidated when they weren't interested in me mm-hmm. and see me as a potential sex partner for X, Y, or Z reason that made me self-conscious about who I am or how I identify. And that's not fair to the person doing the rejection because you don't know whether it's just straight up not into you for legitimate reasons or not into you for other reasons that touch on who you are, how you identify. But I'm sorry, those reasons are also legitimate because no one's required to sleep with anybody else for any reason. Right. And, uh, you know, on the flip side, I encourage people to interrogate their desires, to be open to new experiences, be open to different kinds of people, because often we are capable of and benefit from, you know, a broader spectrum of attraction than we realize, at least when we're young and initially setting out there, because we have the script in our hand that was handed to us. And it takes some time, I think, for people to realize that they can tear up that script and write their own. Totally. I guess sometimes I, being a vagina having human uh, and being around mostly gay men that mm-hmm. um, it's, it's the space that I feel most comfortable in and it's a community that I do feel loved and welcomed and most of the time feel uh, as an equal, but you know, especially when gay boys do the same thing that like hetero boys do when hetero boys have to, you know, act out and, and prove their masculinity. Gay boys kind of do the same thing and talk about how disgusting vaginas are sometimes. And, oh my God, I would never touch one and all that kind of stuff. And, uh, you know, backstage and things when comments like that fly around, it just kind of gets me in a weird headspace and makes me feel a little othered and feel like, you know, undesirable. And I don't know. Well, I, I, you know, I hate to, uh, first of all, I, I'm guilty of that same kind of shit myself, and I apologize if I've made you feel othered. But, but you are undesirable to gay men. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Um, and I, I get that. And, you know, you're looking for just, a particular it, kind of queer person. Yeah. Who is yeah. on the bi spectrum, femme, reads gay, but is into women and not squicked out by vagina wants to plant his face in one. Those guys are out there. They're probably mixed in with the pile of gay guys who are also out there. And you're going to have to dig through that pile to find the guys who are the right certain type of queer femme man for you. Right. (laughs) So you're saying I have to put myself out there. Yeah, Yeah. you do have to put yourself out there. That process can be a little frustrating because you're going to encounter some of that youthful squickiness. And, And not to excuse it, but, you know, think about 11-year-old boys. All of them are squicked out by women's girls' bodies. Ew, gross, ew, gross, right? And then <laughs> mm-hmm, the, mm-hmm. they all hit puberty and the straight and bi ones are like, mm, yum, mm, yum, mm, yum. And they get over the ew, gross pretty quick. 
not because they're more highly evolved, not because they took a women's studies course at 11 or 12, but because puberty grabbed them by the dick. Right. Little gay boys don't get grabbed by the dick at 11 or 12 in quite the same way. And so that right. squickiness can linger, particularly into the early 20s. Mm-hmm. You know, because they've never really had to think about it or confront it. Right. And that's not to excuse it. It's just to contextualize it and, and maybe to thicken your skin a little bit when you encounter it. That it's not about you or your or your vag. It's about them. Right. Yeah. And I mean, I'm I'm not a person who can't take a joke and I usually throw it right back. You know, it's harder whenever sometimes I see it coming out of mouths of, of the guys who have touched my vagina. But you know, just to say one thing in public and then do another thing in private. That's sometimes hard to swallow, but... What do you do at that moment? If somebody who's literally touched your vagina says something <laughs> squeak about vagina in front of you and you're standing there, what what would you do? I'll tell you what I would do, but first I want to hear what you've done. <laughs> well, I usually just shoot them a look or I just sometimes disappear depending on what mood I'm in. Sometimes I just want to yell, I've been inside of you, but you know, that's <laughs> probably not helpful. <laughs> I think that would be very helpful. And I, I think that you should absolutely do that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. I'll try that next time. Yeah. I'm sorry. You're going to have to look for what you want, where it is and the particular type you yeah. want. It's probably gay identified, even if he's not gay. Right. If he's yeah. femme and he reads yeah. super gay and is primarily attracted to other men, uh, mm-hmm. it, it, to, to the extent that he needs to be for you to be attracted to him. Right. Yeah. He's going to be the gay identified bi guy in the pile of uh, super queenie, sexy femme. I love femme boys, super queenie, sexy femme boys at the club or, or in your friendship circle. And the only way for them to know that you're into them because they've disappeared into gay identity, rounded themselves up or down, depending on your POV, to gay. Because it communicates perhaps the larger truth about who they are and how they function and what they want. Right. Is right. it them yeah. to know that you want that part of them that for now is hidden or masked by either a gay default setting assumption or their professed gay identity? Because that feels nearest the mark for them, even if it doesn't fully encompass who they are sexually. So it's really on you to put yourself out there without fear. And you're going to get some weird-ass blowback from some people. But you know what? What you said about worrying about not being taken seriously or made fun of, I know what that feeling is like. Every gay guy in that bar knows what that feeling is like. What you're talking about is the fear of coming out and being judged or mocked or not believed. Right. And everybody in that bar, even if they don't quite get who you are sexually, should understand and be able to empathize with that. Totally. And I mean, I've, I've already done it once, you know, coming out as queer. So I guess, <laughs> I guess the journey continues. Yeah. You're, and you're not even coming out as queer. You're coming out as like the kind of guy you're attracted to and let that rumor spread yeah. because then those guys are going to beat a path to your strap on. Cool. Good luck. Awesome. Well, thank you, Dan. Sure thing. Bye. Hey, Dan. Uh, this is John from North Dakota uh, calling for some, some guidance. One year out from my first divorce, uh, seven-year relationship, uh, nothing horrible kind of happened. Neither one of us cheated. There was no violence or anything. Just kind of grew apart and everything died. And uh, right now I'm kind of in that spot that I think a lot of people in their early 30s are where I kind of stuck to the script and followed the plan and did the thing you're supposed to do and uh, kind of didn't work out. So just kind of ungrounded and a little bit aimless, I guess. And 
I know one year out's not very long, but pretty much the only sort of things I've had are just kind of hookups on Tinder and Bumble or whatever. And I'm pretty straightforward about kind of where I'm at and what I'm offering, so I'm not hurting anyone. But I just can't even really conceptualize basically loving anyone again. And I mean, on the one hand, I know that I'm never going to have that same kind of relationship where it's this sort of naive, useful, innocent, I'm yours, you're mine forever kind of thing. I know that can't happen again. And I know that it's not necessarily a bad thing. It doesn't mean my next relationship can be better, et cetera. But I'm just kind of at that point where it's not even that I hurt anymore. I'm just kind of empty. And I still, even though I'm glad I got divorced and everything, I just can't come to terms with the fact that that person's gone forever. And I actually had to stop smoking weed because of it. Because every time I got high, I really couldn't kind of conceptualize it for Max Walk being gone. But uh, I know that lots of people go through divorces and breakups, and this is nothing special. And I know all this sort of standard shit, go to counseling and make friends and whatever, fucking take up tennis or whatever the hell people do. But uh, I just wanted kind of your take on maybe something else to try just to even get back to that place where I'm even open to, to potentially loving someone again, because it just doesn't feel like that's really possible. I'm, I know it's early, but anyway, any insight that you have uh, is appreciated. Thanks. First, if weed is making you feel bad or making bad feelings worse, maybe not with the weed right now, not this year. Weed isn't the right recreational drug of choice. For you, maybe no recreational drug is the right choice for you at the moment because you're reeling and you're deep in the sads because of your divorce. And that is completely understandable. It's also really, really common. Sometimes when we are wrapped up in our own shit and we are feeling terrible and we're feeling sad and, of course, we have to feel the shit out of our feelings. We have no choice but to feel the shit out of our feelings. It helps to put them in perspective, just to remind ourselves that other people have gone through this too. Other people have gotten out of 2, 5, 10, 12, 15, 17, 7-year marriages, and the end was sad. Sometimes the end of other people's marriages are a lot more contentious than it sounds like the end. Often the end of other people's marriages were a lot more contentious it involved a lot more drama than the end of your marriage involved. And yet people go on and they have new relationships. They find love. They are capable of love. The lesson that you should be taking from your marriage isn't that love can never happen for you again, but that you had the capacity to love this person in the way that you did for the time that you did. And that is a good sign going forward. It means you are capable of love. And that love is a feeling that you can have and love is an action that you can perform and it is a thing that you can do with someone who loves you back. Love isn't always forever. Most relationships end. When you think about even people you know who are in successful, ongoing, long-term relationships, they were in relationships before that relationship. Maybe they were even marriages before that marriage that they're in now. And those relationships ended. And often when you meet somebody who's in a successful long, long, long-term relationship, they were in other short-term relationships that 
unfortunately, we're supposed to say failed because a short-term relationship that two people cut out of alive is regarded as a failure. Relationships, the only thing that two people can get into and then get out of, both of them still alive that we have to regard as a failure, not a standard we apply to automobiles or airplanes, just relationships. And it's the lessons they learned in that successful relationship that they got out of alive and so did their ex that set them up for success in the relationship that they're in now. You learned things about yourself in your marriage, in your first marriage, that if you don't succumb to bitterness and self-pity, will set you up for success in your next successful long-term relationship. I think you need to speak with a therapist if you're really reeling a year later and this despondent. And with a therapist, identify the lessons from your first marriage, the positive ones, not just the negative ones, but the positive ones, so that you feel more confident going forward about being in a new relationship. Because it's always going to be a risk and there are no guarantees and you are likely to get your heart broken again. So, sounds like you're not in a place right now where you should be dating. Sounds like you're in a place right now where you should be sitting on a couch in somebody's office conversing. I would recommend that you do that first. Because it doesn't sound like you're able to put your relationship and what it means into perspective all by yourself. And it sounds like weed isn't helping you do that, so maybe set the bong down for a little bit. Find somebody that you can talk to at greater length about your hurt, about your pain, about the end of this relationship, and remind yourself every single day that other people have been in the spot that you're in now, have felt the things that you are feeling now, and climbed up out of it and are now in new, committed, successful, long-term relationships that are every bit as rewarding and rich in their own way as that brand new love, first love relationship that you are still mourning. Hi, I'm in Minnesota where I was born and raised, 37 years old, have a great group of friends from high school that a lot of them all live here still. And every time I'm home, I'm here for, you know, a week or a month and hanging out with them and love them. Well, I'm out here on the lake with my best friend and we're just sitting here casting out the line and talking about things for five hours. And finally, she looks to me and says, so I have to ask you a question. My boyfriend, someone that we went to high school with, we all went to high school together, said that he has heard that you like to get peed on. And, (laughs) you know, I'm not averse to people that like to get peed on. It's not my thing at all. And I'm frankly mortified. And my first reaction was just like, how I feel like I am being bullied as a 37 year old woman, but also like, I'm, I'm embarrassed. Like how on earth could I combat this? It's just people who, my friends who are married with kids and maybe some of them have heard about it. Maybe some of them haven't, I don't know. And I don't really know what to do next. Tim, do you have anything to say? (laughs) Do I go to the boyfriend? Do I go to my friends? Do I not even care? I, I'm proud of my sexuality and I'm proud of who I am, but I just am not really like that comfortable with all of my best friends thinking that 
I have asked a human person to pee on me. The only way to counter a malicious rumor is with the truth. Your friend, when she asked you whether you actually did enjoy getting peed on, presented you with an opportunity to tell the truth and to tell her that no, indeed, you do not enjoy getting peed on. And hopefully she has relayed that message to whoever it is that she heard from in the first place that you like getting peed on. Not that there's anything wrong with enjoying getting peed on or wanting to pee on people. If you want to be armed with some facts, urophilia, pretty common, but men are overwhelmingly the urophiliacs of the world. Men tend to fetishize urine more often than women. If there's an opposite sex couple and somebody is being peed on, it is almost invariably at the male's request that the peeing, whichever direction it's going, is being performed. So, I wouldn't worry about it too much. This is a hometown rumor started by a malicious fucking ex. If you want to be proactive, contact a few of your friends in town and let them know who you think started the rumor and let them know that it is not true. There are definitely things that you enjoy in the bedroom, but that ain't one of them. And I wouldn't, and I say this to someone who there's a lot of gossip and rumors circulating online about, I wouldn't worry about it too much. And don't assume that Someone who spreads a rumor like that, somebody who just brings that up in casual conversation at dinner or a party, is given a lot of credence by others. Most people, when somebody just blurts out, hey, my ex-girlfriend likes to be peed on, look at that person and think, why on earth would you tell me that, true or not? And it makes that person look like a malicious gossip or an asshole liar or both. So even in the telling of this and the retelling of this and the pushing of this malicious untrue gossip about you your ex-boyfriend if indeed he is the source of this rumor comes out looking worse than you do hi dan i'm a 28 year old queer woman living on the east coast um i'm in a relationship right now with a woman in her late 40s and we've been dating for coming up to 10 months we have pretty much stopped having sex so it's kind of like the notorious lesbian deathbed um and it's because she's stressed and whatever, blah, blah, blah. But in every single relationship that I've had, long-term, short-term, the sex has faded. I have a high sex drive. I love having sex. It's always my partner who, you know, is stressed or doesn't want to have sex as much anymore. Literally every relationship this has happened. So I don't know if there's something wrong with me and it makes me feel like maybe I'm not attractive or I'm not good enough or anything like that. So I want to know your opinion. Am I just continuously choosing the wrong partners to date? Or is there something wrong with me? Um, If this happened like once, it would be totally fine. But this is maybe the fourth time in a relationship that it's happened where we just stop having sex like a couple months in. All right, joining me by phone to help tackle this question about lesbian deathbeds, Ellie Brigida and Lee Holmes Foster are the co-hosts of Les Hangout, a podcast about lesbian experiences, representation, culture, life, and love. Hey, Ellie. Hey, Lee. Hello. So do you think she meant lesbian bed death and not lesbian deathbeds? God, we hope so. (laughs) Yeah, lesbian deathbed sounds very... Very ominous. I think that's something in Handmaid's Tale this season. Oh my god! Oh, that's dark. <laughs> that's so much darker a joke than I was going to make. Let's just tiptoe away from this. Uh, I had to actually. I had to tap out of Handmaid's Tale this season. I couldn't take it. Yeah, yeah. It's a lot emotionally. Yeah, it's a lot of torture, porny stuff this season. And I, well, we, let's not get stuck on that. Um, <laughs> god, I, I want to get off deathbeds as quickly as I possibly can. 
bed death, bed death. Is it a myth, lesbian bed death? People talk about that, and, and, and I've talked about it in the past, but maybe it's confirmation bias at work, because when it's a gay relationship or a straight relationship and it's sexless, we talk about sexless relationships. But when it's a lesbian mm-hmm. relationship, we go, aha, lesbian bed death. Yeah, and that's something that we wanted to talk about, too, is the idea that lesbian bed death only affects lesbians. Like, bed death happens to everyone, you know? There's just bed death. I think as relationships progress, as you change, the more comfortable you get with each other. It's not like there are straight couples out there who don't, you know, have less sex or have no sex um, or even have less intimacy, I think, in their relationships. Mm -hmm. Well, we hear about them all the time, hear from them all the time. Half the mail, half the calls are people in sexless relationships wanting to know what to do, but... So maybe yeah. lesbian bed death is a problem for everyone. It's just we call it sexless relationships when it's not a lesbian couple. Yeah. Okay, yeah, so for sure. we're going to dispense with the lesbian bed death myth. Although there's another angle on it I really wanted to that, – that, that's like the niggling little pedant in the back of my head says it, it forces me to bring up. Um, there's this thing uh, that people write about and talk about uh, reactive desire that for many women um, when they're approached, when they're made to feel desirable, suddenly – Desire and horniness kicks in. So if you have a relationship with two women, maybe you have a relationship with two people, that kind of reactive desire. And if no one's instigating, because both partners are waiting for somebody else to create that reaction by approaching them, by instigating, is that a recipe for more sexless relationships in lesbian land than in opposite sex or same-sex land, same-sex gay land? Yeah, well, I think Lee and I actually have talked about this a little bit and there is, I think, the idea of, of waiting for your other partner. And also, I think, being more likely to accept when someone isn't in the mood, if that makes sense. Uh-huh. You know, yeah, with so two women. With two women. You know, you, you, you start instigating, you start initiating with your partner, and your partner tells you, oh, I'm not feeling it today. In a lesbian relationship, I think we're more likely to be like, oh, honey, it's okay. You're not feeling it. All right, let's just cuddle, you know? <laughs> And so I do think that there is less of the aggressor and the submissive partner in a lesbian relationship. It's more of a an equal footing. Because you don't have a testosterone-soaked dick monster in the room. <laughs> male entitlement syndrome. Yeah, I do think it, it's a weird thing to say, but it because lesbian relationships f- focus more on consent. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But it's also something else that we wanted to make sure is, I think it's something that we hear a lot as kind of a stereotype about lesbians or about women in general is that, you know, they don't have as high of a sex drive as men exactly like that kind of testosterone idea, you know, like must have sex now and all the time. I mean, I think women have sex drives and women, you know, want to have sex. I think there's there's something really important about having that compatibility piece, you know. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, let's get to the to, to the particular issues that the caller raises. She's in a relationship; they're no longer having sex. Ten months in, no longer having sex, and for her, this is a pattern. She gets into a relationship, and she says, usually within a few months, the sex stops, and she's wondering yeah. if this is a lesbian problem or it's a her problem. What's your ruling? I want to say it's not a her problem just because you want to be nice. I I, want to be nice. Um, But I do think it does come down to what Lee's talking about with the sexual compatibility. I don't think it's a her problem, but I think she is choosing partners who are not sexually compatible with her. And in that she said she has a really high sex drive and this keeps happening to her. 
choose partners who have higher sex drives. Yeah. Well, and also, you know, there is something about that. Who, who is instigating and who's, you know, is she waiting for them to initiate and it's not happening as much as she wants? Is she initiating and being turned down? I mean, I think there's a lot of things that, that could be going wrong. I think making sure that that communication is happening. And if the communication is, you know, you don't have the same level of need for how frequently you want to have sex. I mean, that it's a huge part of a relationship. If that's not working out, you know, one or the other of you is probably going to be unhappy. So I, I don't know that it's necessarily a, a her fault or that there is even a fault. It might just be, you know, two people who aren't, aren't connecting right right in that way. I think it helps also at the beginning of the relationship when things are firing on all cylinders to really put out there that sex is important to me. And I'm saying this to the caller. This would be my advice for you. Sex is important to me in a relationship. So I I need a certain amount of sex. I I really am attracted to you. I want to have sex. And in the past, when the sex dies, for me, the relationship's over. I do notice, and this isn't just with lesbians, it's with women generally, that they're socialized and bullied into being seeing themselves, viewing themselves as the nurturers, the fixers, the tinkers mm-hmm. who are there mm-hmm. to protect, preserve the relationship. And if the relationship fails, it's on her more than it's on him or them. And so women often continue to invest in a relationship well past its expiration date instead of pulling the plug. I think if you're in a relationship for 10 months and the sex has been dead since month two or three, it's time to pull the plug and stop. We're working on that relationship. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And I I can personally attest to that in that I have stayed in a relationship that the sex was the sexual compatibility was not there because you you do you you think, OK, we can work on this. Everything is workable, mm-hmm. but incompatible sex drives is never going to be workable. It's just it's something that you're right. The expiration date is there. People don't feel like they're entitled to prioritize sexual compatibility in a relationship because everything else is supposed to be more important. Emotional compatibility, whether you want the same things socially, kids, whether your families get along. People have it in their heads that sex is really important, so important you can't do it with anybody else if you're into monogamy. But sex is so trivial that you're not allowed to prioritize it as something important to establish sexual compatibility. And so people write me and call me all the time and say, and I do get these letters, I think, more often from lesbians, everything in this relationship is working, it's lovely, it's wonderful, except, and I always know what the except or the but is going to be, it's (laughs) going to be except and but the sex. (laughs) And they stay and stay and stay. So as professional lesbian podcasters, your (laughs) advice to your fellow lesbians is go. Yes, honestly. (laughs) Sexual compatibility is very important. It's as important as any other component of a relationship, I think. Hi, Dan. I am a lesbian in Texas, and I am currently in a relationship with a bisexual woman. And she has actually just come out this year, and we've officially been together for a year. My question, though, is in the past, I have been in open relationships before and I've had more sexual partners well a lot more than my current partner and because she is new to the queer community and everything I kind of want her to experience more partners I don't want to limit her but the problem is we are in a monogamous relationship 
And I've kind of talked to her here and there about possibly being in an open relationship or at least being open to like a threesome. Uh, Again, guy or girl don't really have a preference, but I just want her to experience that more. I, I feel like her sexual experiences have been very limited and I just, I want her to have other partners. I just don't know how to have that conversation with her. Again, she knows that I'm open to it and she's kind of, she's thought about it, but hasn't really given me a clear answer on whether or not she's interested. Exactly. I think she might need more time. I just, I don't want to keep bringing it up, but also I don't really know how to have the conversation. So it sounds like she's just going to shove pussy down her new girlfriend's throat whether her new girlfriend wants <laughs> other pussy or not. Is that okay? I, I think that's the classiest way to explain that. Yeah, good <laughs> recap. <laughs> um, I, you know, we don't know why this is the case. I mean, I think my, my initial question is just why is it so important that she have other partners? Like, why does that matter so much? It's, I mean... I get that there's this weird societal thing that we have of like, you have to sleep with all these people and experience all this stuff and, you know, know what you like, but it see, it feels a little awkward to try to keep pushing that, you know, on someone else who's not expressing any interest in it. Who just came out. Right. And, and maybe right now all she wants is you. Maybe she's not ready to be thrown into the great wood chipper of yeah. <laughs> sexual craziness and i'm a fan of that witch for myself at times but maybe you know she just your girlfriend just came the fuck out of the closet and <laughs> maybe one partner right now that she feels safe with and bonded to and is sexually attracted to is good enough for now she knows that you're open to her banging somebody else at some point down the road if she feels the need but she doesn't feel the need right now right yeah, and I think she has been very clear. It seems she's been very clear that she wants her partner to sleep with other people. And you don't need to keep bringing up the conversation. Like, if she wants to sleep with other people, she knows she can, and she will tell you at some point. Do you think it's yeah. about insecurity? Because sometimes when people bring this up, like, I'm the first person they've ever been with. I really think that they need to have more experiences. I really think that they need to be with other people. What, you know, if you really dig down with that person, often what they're saying is, how can I be sure they really like me? If they haven't, if they have nothing to compare me to. Yeah, I think it's definitely fear based. I mean, I think the idea is, you know, somewhere underneath that there's this idea of what if I'm not enough and what if they want something else eventually, you know, like giving them that chance now I can see the, the motivation, but it feels a little weird to try to force them into it if they don't want that, you know, yeah, chill the fuck out. If she doesn't, right. If she doesn't want to sleep with other people, like maybe don't force her to that's it's kind of weird because eventually the girlfriend is gonna is gonna think she's pushing me away not that she wants Mm -hmm. me to have more experiences but she doesn't want me and she's trying to offload me to a cast of thousands well or that it's projecting you know she really wants to push for me to be able to sleep with other people so that she can sleep with other people i mean i feel like there's a lot of ways that that could come across that don't don't seem like the right right decision for you know having a healthy monogamous relationship okay so caller you've got your answer stop re-asking the question in hopes that there will be a different answer (laughs) the answer right now is she is content with things as they are she's only wanting to fuck you right now and you need to let that be the fucking answer and fuck her yeah there you go 
doctor or a girlfriend? Is that is that a good? Uh... Seems pretty easy. Yeah, yeah. It, it, this is you know a, a, what we call not a problems around here. This is you're <laughs> making this not a problem a problem by hammering away at it by insisting it must be a problem when really there's no problem here. You don't particularly want to sleep with anybody else right now, caller. Neither does your girlfriend. You have it on some sort of odd point of principle that she should wanna, but she doesn't, and she knows, and she knows that she could. So when she's ready to or would like to, that door is open. Hey, Dan. Uh, I'm a 24-year-old bisexual female in Canada. So my question is about uh, my ex-girlfriend who cheated on me, and we broke up two years ago. She left me with a dog, apartment, a car lease, and basically derailed my life for that time. Um, So now I've got myself back on my feet and I was doing an innocent Facebook creep and I noticed that my best friend liked her profile photo. So I click on the list and accidentally like the photo myself and I immediately unlike it and it was too late. So she messages me asking if I'm ready to talk and I made it clear I don't want to talk. I said, it makes me sick knowing that you still exist. Leave me alone, which is rude. I understand, but subjectively, like she's a terrible person. Um, So her girlfriend fiance then sends me a novel explaining how well that they're doing together and that she just wanted to apologize to me and that she's come a long way with her addiction and is sensitive blah 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 um, she also mentioned that my best friend is planning to hang out with my ex and that i should consider forgiving her too so basically my question is about my best friend i feel really betrayed that she would even consider a friendship with my ex because they were never friends before so basically she said that she just knows that my ex will understand what she's going through with addiction I mean, I try to understand where I can, but that's what AA is for and everything else, anyone else. So please help me if you can, Dan. Is it fair for me to think that a lot of lesbian ex relationships are pretty toxic? So I feel like we always say there's two extremes with lesbian exes. You're either like this level of toxic or you're like still best friends. I feel like yeah, or they're in your bridal party, Lee. Hey, hey. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. Was, did you have an ex in your, wait, wait, stop. Did you have an ex in your bridal party? I did have an ex in my bridal party. I think that's lovely. <laughs> I support but, that. But that's sort of the other extreme situation. There's, there's very infrequently the gray area of, you know, we're just sort of neutral towards each other. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Either you hate their guts and you never want to see them again, or yeah, you still live with them. We have to do a little forensic accounting here to figure out why the caller seems so furious. She told her ex, it makes me sick knowing you still exist. That's pretty hot. That's heavy words right there. And, and, you know, based on, you know, she mentioned addiction. It sounds like the relationship was high conflict and the end was pretty traumatic for the caller. So I don't want to come down too hard on the caller for seeming so angry because we all have exes who were really awful to us and we're never going to be able to invite them to be in our bridal party. <laughs> but the issue isn't with her ex. The issue is with her best friend. Yeah. I think the thing is, no one is going to say that you have to have any sort of specific relationship with your exes. I mean, it's such an individual situation. There's so many layers that like no one can ever really get into. I think the thing with your friend, though, is, you know, you can't you can't really police what your friends do. I mean, you have to be able to separate to a certain extent, you know, your relationship with them and their relationship with other people in their lives. What, where does loyalty come in? You know, if you have an ex who, let's say, assaulted you and that was led to the end of the relationship, 
I don't think it's fair for your friends to say, well, we're going to compartmentalize here. And I know that, you know, they broke your nose, but they never punched me in the face. So we're friends separate and distinct from your relationship and all of its drama and trauma. Yeah, I think you are right. We don't know exactly what did happen in this relationship. So if it was to that extent, I think you are right. The, the friend should respect that if they're your best friend, they have your back no matter what. Right. But sometimes the best friend tells you the truth. So I've had to say to best friends, your anger at your ex is a little, you know, exaggerated or misplaced. And you need to wind that down because it's causing trouble for a lot of people in your social circle that you are so angry about what was kind of a commonplace breakup. I've said that to good friends. And there, and there are lines. I mean, if there were lines that were crossed and your friend is still somehow, you know, supporting your ex in that case, I mean, maybe that's not your best friend then, but you know, if, if it is that situation where they have maybe a different perspective, maybe an outside perspective on the situation, um, you know, I think if you, if that's too much for you, if you can't handle, um, them being willing to, to be friends with both of you, then, you know, that's your decision in terms of how you handle that relationship with your friend. But I don't think, I think your choice is, you know, stay friends with your best friend or not. I don't think your choice is tell them who they can and can't be friends with. I think that's excellent advice. (laughs) I have nothing to add. Can you tell us all, tell my listeners a little bit about Les Hangout? Sure. Les Hangout is a a podcast. It's Ellie and I, we are the the lesbians that you hang out with. Uh, And... (laughs) And it's an exploration of, you know, we discuss queer culture, queer life, queer experiences. Yeah, and the majority of it is is through the lens of lesbian media. So we talk a lot about our favorite lesbian TV shows and movies. Um, We have a segment also called Should Have Been Gay, where we talk (laughs) about all of the straight couples on TV who would have been so much better if they were gay. Yeah, movies, TV... Uh, the last one we did was Paris and Rory from Gilmore Girls. <laughs> yeah, and one of, I think, our fan favorites was Bend It Like Beckham. Yeah. Because the main characters in, in that should have totally been lesbians. Oh, God, yeah. <laughs> Even I thought yeah. that. Yeah, it's obvious. Um, where are you guys based out of? So we're actually a bi-coastal podcast. I live in Boston, and Lee lives in San Francisco, and we get together once a week on Skype, and we talk about lesbian issues. So your lesbian podcast is a continent-straddling lesbian colossus. <laughs> yes. I like that a lot. We're going to add gonna, that to the media kit. Yeah, Ellie, we'll put that on our business cards. <laughs> Ellie and Lee, they are the hosts, co-hosts of Les Hangout. Check it out wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you guys so much for jumping on the phone with me today to help tackle these lesbo questions. Thanks. Thank you so much for having us. Hello. My question is about, I guess, um, posthumously Kate shaming someone. When I was a kid, I lost my uncle, and he was um, in the Air Force at the time. When he passed away, the news was that he had passed away through autoerotic asphyxiation, which at the time, we didn't believe. We still don't believe, I think, as a family, but I was thinking about it recently, and I think, I don't know, like, it's weird for me to, to to, to try to figure out like how I should feel about it. Is it okay that we don't believe it? Because it's like moral it's for, for, for a lot of us is it's just like, this seems like a bad thing, but at the same time, I feel like I should be okay if that's the truth too. So your uncle died years ago. 
erotic asphyxiation. Please, people, don't engage in solo asphyxiation play. Too many people have died. Too many people continue to die by risking it. And most people who die engage in autoerotic asphyxiation play. It's not the first time they attempted it. So people wind up creating for themselves a false sense of security and immortality because the first 30 times they attempted this, they survived and they were fine. People don't die from autoerotic asphyxiation usually the first time they attempt it. So don't do it. Asphyxiation play is if you're going to do it and it's risky and dangerous and I don't think you should do it. It is for partnered play. You rarely, if ever, hear about someone dying doing asphyxiation play with another human being there in the room. That wasn't the question, though. What about your uncle? Posthumous kink shaming. It amazes me how often you read about what's clearly, when you dive into the details, a death from autoerotic asphyxiation, a death from a masturbatory, supposed to be pleasurable experience, the intention was pleasurable, being called or described as a suicide. And people are more comfortable because of the sex negativity and sex shame and kink shame in the culture going with suicide despite the shame and the stigma attached to suicide than they are embracing or accepting, not embracing, just acknowledging that this was self-pleasure gone terribly, terribly awry. I don't think you can kink shame the dead, but I don't think it's helpful for the living to misattribute an autoerotic asphyxiation death to suicide. Because an autoerotic asphyxiation death is an accidental death. And people need to be acquainted with the risks. And when autoerotic asphyxiation deaths are presented to us in the drag of suicide, it prevents people or more people from getting it through their heads just how risky autoerotic asphyxiation play is. Very sorry about your uncle's death. Hello, Dan. I'm in a four-year relationship with another man. Previously, I'd been in a seven-year relationship with another man. And currently, my relationship is monogamous. My, um, in my previous relationship, I had been both monogamous and, and non-monogamous. And the situation that I, I find myself now is that I, I've cheated. I've um, gone on, on the apps, and I've hooked up with, with other guys. And now I find myself in, not caught, but realizing that I don't know if I can continue monogamy. I'm still very deeply in love with my boyfriend and I want to be with him and I feel very emotionally connected to him but sexually we're not very connected and I don't know how to broach the subject because I, I feel like even opening that conversation will create a huge rift and I've already stepped outside of the lines and I don't even know how I would begin the conversation saying I might want to have sex with other people when in reality I already have I know that this calls into question a lot of my own character, and I, I do feel a lot of guilt about it, even though it wasn't only once. It's been more than once. And I'm trying to stop. I'm trying to at least put a lid on that. But in the absence of sex with my boyfriend, it feels good. It feels really good to be with somebody else. So any advice for me? Ask yourself which scenario your relationship with the boyfriend that you love, and I don't doubt that you love him. People, indeed, can be in love with someone and cheat on that person. Ask yourself which scenario the relationship is likely to survive. You cop to it. You come clean. You disclose these errors that you cheated, or you get busted. 
If you are getting on apps in the city where you live and you are sleeping around behind your boyfriend's back, that is going to get back to him. You are likelier to survive the cop to it than the busted for it. So I think you need to go to your boyfriend, particularly if you are taking risks with other men, and tell him what you've done. Tell him that you feel bad about it to an extent. I think you should be completely honest with him that you have enjoyed the sex and felt guilty about it. But what you've learned now, what you know now about yourself is that a monogamous commitment is not the right thing for you in this relationship perhaps or in any relationship most likely. And so going forward, this needs to become a non-monogamous relationship for it to survive because you can't do monogamy. And if this relationship ends going forward, please don't make a monogamous commitment to the next man that you commit yourself to. You say you feel guilty. You say you want to stop. Doesn't sound like you want to stop having sex with people in addition to your boyfriend, the guy you love. You enjoyed that. You want to stop lying. You want to stop sneaking around. You want to stop looking at him when he says, I love you and wondering, would you really, if you knew who I was and what I've done, tell him who you are, tell him what you've done, ask him how he feels. He may be open to the idea of a non-monogamous relationship. For all you know, he may have cheated on you already too, and it might become a mutual disclosure session. That has happened. I've heard from people who tearfully confessed in infidelity only to sit there and have their partner tearfully confess their own infidelity. There are a lot of successful, committed, loving, long-term, stable, non-monogamous relationships out there that were once monogamous relationships that became non-monogamous, committed, loving, stable relationships after the disclosure of an infidelity, after the cheating came out after somebody copped to it or got busted and the couple was able to process the anger, process the guilt and recommit to each other. But now a non-monogamous commitment. If you can get to non-monogamous commitment, if he can forgive you and you two can get to a non-monogamous commitment together, that's the relationship that you'd need to be in. If you can't get there, if he can't forgive you, if an open relationship isn't the kind of relationship that he wants, you're not right for each other not sexually compatible and you need to end it. Hey, Dan and the tech savvy at risk youth. I'm calling in regards to the woman who got the text from her dad about the earring and just concerned whether or not he's having an affair. And I think your advice was totally spot on. My father has been taking care of my mother, who's a lifelong alcoholic, who for all intents and purposes, has been having an affair with a bottle for the last 20 years of their 30-year marriage. And over the years, we thought, hmm, there are some signs here, but nothing was brought up. There was nothing completely obvious. It was just a hunch between my siblings and I. And ultimately, the decision we had to make was that if him potentially having things on the side or people on the side means that he can stay true to his wedding vows to have and to hold to take care of this person who can't take care of herself? Well, if we're not in the middle and we're not having to provide any deception or provide any cover, then, you know, it's between the two of them and he still takes care of her. So it's hard to fault someone for that. Hi, I'm calling about the uh, listener who hadn't orgasmed um, and 21 years old. I was the same way. I did not get an orgasm um, for masturbating until my... Uh, mid-20s, and I also had a very similar fear, intense fear of pregnancy um, due to my um, my religious upbringing. I think that those things are extremely related and that 
she, like me, may have a strong link between anything sexual and um, fear because of the pregnancy fear, um, that it just kind of bleeds over into everything sexy is everything fearful. So I think that working on that irrational fear of um, pregnancy ruining your life if you get pregnant outside of marriage, uh, I think really breaking that down maybe with a therapist would be really helpful in um, being able to unlock that part of you and that fearlessness that you need a little bit to be able to let go into orgasm. Hello to everyone at my favorite podcast. I am actually a sex therapist, and this is in response to episode number 606, where the woman was really enjoying oral sex, but imagining that she had a dick. Well, I actually hear this all the time, and I've experienced it myself, and we have sort of coined this term, um, having an energetic penis, which means for some reason we can sort of imagine that we have a penis that can penetrate or be sucked. And we're going to leave it there. 206-302-2064 is the number here at the Savage Lovecast. If you'd like to record a question or a comment for a future show, give us a buzz. 206-302-2064. Come see my Dirty Little Porn Film Festival. Well, it's still legal to go see Dirty Little Porn Film Festivals. Who knows where this country is going? Go to humpfilmfest.com to find out when Hump is coming to on a city near you. Also, while you're online, go to itmfa.org or impeachthemotherfuckeralready.com and get your ITMFA shirts, hats, t-shirts, stickers, coffee cups, buttons, lapel pins. They're really fun to wear out there. There are now rainbow-striped ITMFA t-shirts and tanks available. People will see you in your ITMFA wear or see you drinking coffee at work out of your ITMFA cup, and they will ask you what that stands for. It happened to be yesterday in New York, and you get to say, impeach the motherfucker already. And you know what? That's a fun fucking thing to say to people. ITMFA.org. All proceeds benefit the American Civil Liberties Union, Planned Parenthood, and the International Refugee Assistance Project. Follow me on Twitter at FakeDanSavage. Follow Ellie and Lay on Twitter at LesHangoutPod. The Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and the tech-savvy at-risk youth and Nancy. Well, I'll be back at you next week with an installment of Savage Lovecast. Thanks for downloading.